Good morning. Please turn with me to Psalm 22. It's a psalm to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. And to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred or afflicted or the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise my Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord.
We're meditating through the Psalms in the summer. And here is truly an ancient masterpiece. This is David, the king, the poet, the warrior, the shepherd. And in this, in this psalm, David really spans the emotional gamut, doesn't he? Uh, because he begins with this visceral sorrow. But he concludes with rapturous praise. He, he starts singing the blues. It's a lament. Uh, but he concludes with a victory chant. He concludes with praise. It's a lament that concludes with praise. But have you noticed how vividly this psalm anticipates the suffering of Jesus of Nazareth? You can't miss it if you're familiar with Christianity. The lyrics here are filled with prophetic statements about Jesus' physical suffering, about his public humiliation, even about the utter loneliness that he felt on the cross and the night before it. Just look at, some of the, look at some of the verses in Psalm 22 right away in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's first words on the cross. And if you look down at verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Very similar to the language uh, of Jesus' mockers at the foot of the cross and the people going by while he hung there crucified, mocking him and taunting him. Verse 14 here, I am poured out like water. You remember after Jesus had died, how they pierced his side to see if he was dead and how blood and water gushed out. Look at verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The very thing that the Roman soldiers did on that hill. Finally, verse 31, the expression, he has done it. Now, it was an ancient Hebrew expression, but if you look at the Greek expression in the New Testament, that was recorded for when Jesus said his last words on the cross, they're very similar. It is finished. You know, I got to tell you, faithful preaching demands that, that a preacher consider a passage of Scripture in its original historical context first and then apply it to, to modern day people. If I'm going to be a faithful preacher of God's Word, I've got to first help you see it in its original historical context and then apply it to our lives today. But Psalm 22, and this is probably the only time I'll ever say this, Psalm 22 is different. You know, one scholar said about Psalm 22 that there is no incident recorded in David's life that can even begin to account for Psalm 22. Most of David's psalms or the psalms attributed to David, you can kind of do some guesswork and figure out, oh, he went through experiences recorded in the historical books of the Old Testament that resemble uh, what is going on in this psalm. You look at Psalm 22 and you really can't say that. Yes, you can say David suffered. Yes, you can say he was humiliated. Yes, you can say he felt physical pain and he felt abandoned. But you can never say that David endured an execution, which is clearly what Psalm 22 depicts. Neither can you say that David experienced crucifixion. Crucifixion, nobody, you didn't crucify people in David's day. That would only come centuries later by the Romans. 
It was St. Augustine, the early church father, who said of Psalm 22, the passion of the Christ is recounted in this psalm as clearly as in the gospel. Yet the psalm was composed, goodness knows how many years before the Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. It was a herald, giving advance notice of the coming of the judge. So I'm going to assume today that David prophesied about an event, about a person, about a sufferer that he had never met before. That would come centuries later. And today I want to talk to you about the pain of the one who suffered and the praise of the one who suffered. And then I want to talk to you about the love of the one who suffered. The pain, the praise, and the love of this one who suffered in Psalm 22. And I hope you're going to see that the Christian life offers joy among sorrow and praise among pain. If you're a Christian, you may have experienced this, or you may be struggling to know that this is true. And if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here, and I want to present to you one of the unique aspects of Christianity. Now, the pain of the one who suffers in Psalm 22 illustrates how Christians suffer differently. Remember my friend telling me a story of, a, of his friend uh, who was a nurse, and she said that she became a Christian after she had observed again and again in intensive care units how Christians suffered differently. And she said, and you know, in the hospital... I've seen Christians suffer, and they suffer differently than other people. And I think you see it right in the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is important. Because the sufferer speaks for everybody who struggles with God's silence in the middle of your pain. You ever feel that way before? You ever endure something and you wonder, where is God? What is he up to? What is he doing? Because I, I feel numb and I don't know where he is. And the psalmist here speaks, the sufferer speaks for all who suffer and struggle with wanting to understand why God is being silent. See, for the Christian, we question God. We legitimately, honestly question God. He can handle that. But we remain convinced that he exists. And we remain convinced that he's our God. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? You see, we don't interpret our trials and we don't interpret our feelings to mean that God is not good. That God does not exist. Rather, the Christian is enabled to cling to what is objective, God's nature, God's character, and his word, what he has said and what he has promised. And so you see this in verses 3 and 4. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So biblical faith boldly asserts that somebody can really suffer. You can really suffer without losing truth. 
and without losing hope. That's something our society is questioning right now. Does God exist and is he good because of what we see happening in the world? And the Christian worldview can say, yes, God exists, and yes, God is good, and I see it even as I'm suffering. And that was the case with Jesus on the cross when he cried out in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God, the only begotten Son of God said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus is, is attributing is claiming Psalm 22 as his own, as his own experience, as his own words, as his own story. The physical pain, the public humiliation, the utter loneliness, Jesus claimed it all as his own. He said, your experience, the human experience, has become God's experience. This is mine, Jesus is saying on the cross when he quotes the beginning of Psalm 22. And it was the author of the book of Hebrews, because the New Testament also attributes Psalm 22 to Jesus. And the New Testament says, hey, David was not only a king and a songwriter, he was a prophet. And he prophesied about the Messiah that was going to come. But in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of that letter says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted, the word is also tested, has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help us in time of need. So we can seek sympathy from Jesus in the midst of our suffering as somebody who knows. He really knows. What's the old spiritual? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That, that is exactly right. The Christian can say, my leader and my God can fully relate to my suffering. Whether, I've in, whether, whether I'm in pain or utterly feel alone, or whether I've been publicly shamed or humiliated in my home or in my job, the God I worship intimately knows my experience and has taken my experience upon himself and has represented me in his suffering. So your leader and your God as a Christian identifies with you. And that's why you can identify with Jesus because he's already in his suffering identified with you. That's unique about Christianity. But there's a lot more to Psalm 22 than simply the pain of the one who suffered. The praise of the one who suffered shows us why Christians sing. Christians sing. Well, I'll tell you in a little bit why Christians sing. Even though Psalm 22 is usually recalled for its anticipation of Christ's crucifixion, because of how it begins, why have you forsaken me? Most Christians remember Psalm 22. Most students of the Bible remember Psalm 22 because of the suffering that takes place. But it should be recalled just as much for its anticipation of victory, of Christ's victory, of his resurrection. 
Because, and you don't pick up on this as well in the English, it, it's more vivid in the ancient Hebrew, but there's a thematic pivot, the whole pivot, and, and I'm glad the way Faith read this because it was reflected in her reading. There's a thematic pivot in verse 21, and you see it. Save me from the mouth of the lion, and then you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And after that shift, the whole tone of the psalm changes. And you get this amazing progression. Uh, if you look at verse 22, you hear this. I will tell. So this is the one who's been suffering and saying, God, there is nobody to help. Why have you forsaken me? I'm a worm and not a person. Now he's saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Then in verses 23 and 24, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And then in verse 27, you hear this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So you see that the sufferer is suddenly delivered, or in the very least, he anticipates his coming deliverance. And then you see something remarkable. He begins to lead Israel in praise and worship. And more than that, he begins to lead the Gentiles, the nations, in praise and worship. And so you see him delivered by God, and then you see him lead the people of God in worship and praise and thanksgiving, and how that extends by God's missionary heart to the ends of the earth which is just a foretaste of the message of the New Testament and the good news itself. See, this is what's so important about the second half of Psalm 22. This is what we learn. Jesus not only suffered for humanity, Jesus worshipped for humanity. Have you ever thought of Jesus that way? That he not only represented you as a sufferer, but he represented you as a worshipper. That's why he came in the first place. Because when Adam and Eve decided to forget God and follow the serpent, humanity, ever since, we've been idolaters. We've been false worshipers, worshiping the wrong things and the wrong people ever since. And Jesus came to turn that on its head and put humanity back in the right place, worshiping its creator. So Jesus not only represented humanity in his suffering, Jesus represented humanity in his praise. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the truest worshiper to ever live. He's the first true singer of songs of praise to God. It's him. Uh, why do Christians sing? Because God wins in the end. And because God is coming back in the man Jesus, to restore all things and make society and government and art and relationships restored and perfect and healed, including you, if you'll let him do that for you. Christians sing because God wins in the end and Jesus is coming back and is preparing a place for us. Uh, but you can just as legitimately say something more simple. Christians sing because Jesus sings. Jesus sings to God in worship, not only prophetically in Psalm 22, but even on the cross as he cried out to God, 
he sang in his suffering to his heavenly father. I would love to hear Jesus sing someday. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. That's, that's what Mary Bowler Peters said. We just sang her hymn earlier this morning. Faith can sing through sorrow. And what makes our pain unique for the Christian, what makes your pain unique in this world is the presence of praise. That's what's unique about Christian suffering is the presence of legitimate praise based upon Christ's victory. Of course, of course, go to Jesus looking for sympathy in your pain. Absolutely. And what I'm saying to you today is equally go to Jesus to lead you in worship and praise and thanksgiving in your pain. You know, too often we reject the one without pursuing the other. I would love everybody to consider all of Psalm 22 and ask ourselves whether we hold on to our pain without pursuing praise. I think our problem is that we hate to suffer, but we don't want to worship. We hate our pain. We despise our suffering, but we don't want to give thanks to God and we don't want to praise him and we don't want to give all that we have to him. So we pursue, I mean, we, we're Americans, so we are, we are professional rehabilitation pursuers. Um, we are professionals at trying to avoid pain. Our society has made it an art and a science. Uh, and all of these things are good in the right perspective, but what do we do? We pursue counseling and therapy, and we get serious about exercise and, and medicine. And we work really hard at our leisure and our hobbies and entertainment. But we don't pursue joy. We want to be happy. Americans pursue happiness. But happiness is contingent upon how things are going for you. Joy is the contentment and the satisfaction and the happiness you have regardless of how things are going. Joy comes from saying, God, I don't know where you are right now. I feel like a worm. Everybody hates me, but you are still my God. And I will give thanks to you. I will praise him still. Nehemiah said to the Israelites who were so discouraged, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So exercise, get therapy and counseling. If the medicine works, good. Pursue leisure, get some rest, enjoy some entertainment. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think that joy in suffering and, and, and pain in the middle of, uh, sorry, praise in the midst of your pain is only possible through love. Uh, love is what connects the pain to the joy. It's love. And it's got to be a certain type of love. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 said, and he was a man who suffered. Believe me, if you've struggled, Paul probably has a few rungs on the ladder of suffering above, above you. He didn't brag about it, but he did say this. Oh, man, 
Did I miss that quote? I did. I'm going to skip it. No, I'm not going to skip it. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back a couple of minutes and just say this. This is, what else, this is what's so unique about the Christian experience of pain is our praise uh, not only establishes our joy and encourages us, but it's a witness. It, it's a testimony to our community and to the world. Uh, the theologian Edmund Clowney wrote, you needn't hum a hymn to begin your personal witness to a neighbor. But if your heart is singing praise, then your witness will ring true. In a praising church, let's think about this as a congregation, a praising church full of gospel singing is a church in which visitors will say, God is among you indeed. And so joy in suffering and praise in the midst of our pain is only possible through love. And the Apostle Paul Paul said this, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can anything separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ? And Paul's answer was no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. At the heart of Christ's pain, at the heart of Jesus' praise, is love. Love for God the Father and love for you. Because he took your penalty on that cross. And he's coming back to get you. At the heart of Christ's pain and praise is love and you need to let that love be at the heart of your pain. You need to let the love of Christ be at the heart of your praise. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, here I go, I quote it even in the summer. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey says near the end of the movie, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. The reason he said such a crazy thing despite the possibility of, of imminent incarceration, imminent incarceration is because he had just got his life back. His life had been returned to him, quite literally, and he received back his identity and all his hopes and his family. And while he was facing a daunting prospect, he was able to rejoice. And, and really, that's... That's the point of Christianity is in Christ you've been given everything back. You've been given your very life by a suffering Savior who loves you, who sings for you, who sings over you. So in Christ, you can wake up. In Christ, you can get up. In Christ, you can get a life because it's literally been given back to you. And because your heavenly father is preparing a place for you. So Jesus is alive. He's coming back. And this is what Edmund Clowney said again. By the lament of his prayer and the pain of his praise, Jesus Christ turns our sighing into singing. And gives us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So... The Christian life offers joy even in the midst of sorrow, offers legitimate praise, not fake stuff. Legitimate praise 
in the midst of our pain. Jesus personally embodied our worst suffering. And he personally embodies our brightest worship. So let Jesus teach you how to suffer. Were you given that opportunity? Have you ever allowed Jesus to teach you how to suffer? Let him show you how to suffer. But let him show you how to praise God. Let Jesus show you how to worship. Let's praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your suffering servant, for the true Messiah, for the king who stepped off his throne to serve his subjects who had rebelled. We praise you for his love for us even while we were still sinners. We praise you that Jesus was not just a sufferer, but a conqueror. We thank you that Jesus is not only full of truth, but full of emotion. Uh, that he praises you in thanksgiving and in joy. And Father, it's our prayer now as a community of faith that you would teach us how to praise you and give thanks to you even in the midst of our suffering. Uh, Father, we have your truth. We confess that we have rejected your joy. And we ask that you would restore it to us for the sake of our Savior in his name. Amen.